podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week in Redinger, it's a little bit different. In 2003, I'd never left Australia before, and I planned a round-the-world trip that would end up in South Africa for the Cricket World Cup. It was life-changing for me in so many different ways, but I've never really written about it. But the pinch-hitting podcast guest host, Subhash Jairaman, has heard me talk about it quite a few times, and he thought it would make a good podcast. We talk about watching Michael Jordan, the price of hockey tickets, a baseball fight, a pub called Belushi's, a incident in a greyhound toilet, Andy Bickle, stealing from Andrew Simons, spitting while I screamed, John Davison, and the time I woke up Adam Gilchrist on a plane. All right, Kimber, typically you have someone as a guest that has written something consequential and you discuss the subject with them, but you and I, we don't do typical. So I'm the host on your show. We are going to be talking about a piece that you had wanted to write, but you haven't written yet. And uh, this is to do with uh, your experiences of traveling from uh, Australia, which is where you're from, uh, to America and then to South Africa for the 2003 Cricket World Cup. Considering that I have done something like that in reverse, though, like from America to South Africa to Australia, I think I'm perfectly suited for this. So let's get going. So how bored were you and how uh, aimless you were in your life in 2003 that you wanted to come to uh, George W. Bush, America? (laughs) Uh, Because I was working for Qantas and I I just figured it was a... If I was going to fly, I just was like, I might as well just fly around the world. We'd already, me and my mates had already planned about doing the World Cup. And then we were like, well, my cousin, uh, my cousin was in uh, London. So we we're like, well, let's stop with her for a week. And then we're, and then we were just like, why don't we just go to America and like see if we can go to NBA games? Cause this is obviously very early in the internet. I, I don't even think you probably bought, in fact, I know you couldn't buy them on the internet. Cause I think we tried at that stage. It was really hard to get tickets online. And so, we basically just booked this itinerary around. One of my mates was a mad Buddy Holly fan, so we went to Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> I remember I made the bus. We, we were on a, this long bus trip at one stage, and we stopped in Beaver, Colorado, just so I could get a photo in front of a sign that said Beaver, because I was an idiot. <laughs> How old were you, 12? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, one of my other mates, um, Todd uh, Spear, who's a, a basketball writer now, works for NBA and a few other, and basketball reference, he... um. He's playing basketball at a junior college in Lamar in Colorado. So we went there and we watched him play. So I watched it my first ever. It, what are they? What would they call that? Is that a, a J- junior varsity? Junior yeah. varsity, yeah. And there was there was a all in brawl in the toilets between the two baseball teams from the two colleges who played earlier that day. So I mean, literally, I came out, you know, shook it off, went to wash my hands, and suddenly there were just people punching each other around me. Uh, so that was fun. And then we sort of stopped at like cultural places along the way. So uh, we stopped at Memphis uh, so we could, get, you know, go to um, the blues stuff. And then we're like in Memphis. So we watched the, the Grizzlies play. Um, and, and then we went to, we must have seen a game in, before they were Brooklyn. Was it New Jersey Nets? Were they still New yes. Jersey Nets in yes, 2003? Jer- no, they were. They were in New Jersey Nets at the time. And so Jason Kidd was their point guard, I think, yep. in 2003. Yep. 
So we saw we saw Jason Kidd. We saw so who would Paul Gasol been playing for? So Memphis. Memphis. Oh, he was playing for Memphis, and Dirk was yeah. playing. So we saw Dirk versus Paul Gasol, like really early on in their careers as well. And I was, you know, me, I'm a big European basketball fan, so that was huge. And then yeah, and then we saw Jason Kidd play Michael Jordan. In fact, mm-hmm. who, who you may have heard of, he's also a basketball player. The uh, singer, you mean? Oh, he's also. <laughs> and uh, Michael Jordan, it was his last forty point game. So that was the Wizards that we went to. It was yeah. literally a full Wizards stadium. And in that stadium, there were 30... 35- Basketball arena, football stadium. Fair point. Yeah. Uh, there was 35,000 Japanese um, tourists who'd come over for the game. Everyone had a Jordan um, mm. a, a jersey on. It was incredible. The, the whole thing was incredible. So, yeah, so we were lucky to to you know really be able to see some basketball. We tried to, I tried to go to... We were in Pittsburgh, and I tried to see the... No, the... the ba- no, it's the bas- baseball team is Pirates. No, not the baseball team, the hockey Penguins. team. Penguins. Penguins. We tried to yeah. get a ticket to the Penguins. Oh, my God, how much do white people pay for tickets? We were getting, like, I was, like, within spitting distance of Dirk, and it cost me, like, 10 bucks. And to go to, like, a <laughs> hockey game on the last row was going to cost me, like, 80 bucks. And I'm like, it's hockey. Who gives a shit, man? Yeah, at that time, you know, because uh, Mario Lemieux had recently come back, lining up with the Jordans come back. You know, those it was two Pittsburgh, great... man. It's Pittsburgh. They care about hockey. Okay, I don't, but they do. You don't. They do. Yeah. So yeah, so so, so that was that was one of our things. Was let's just go to as much basketball. And the, the one I missed out on, which I I always regret, but I did try. I lined up in the queue at Madison Square Garden to get tickets, and it was Yao Ming's first game in um, Madison Square oh. Garden. And, you know, I was, I was huge. I love, I love Chinese basketball as well, and I really wanted to see it. And the guy in front of me got the last tickets <sighs> in, in the queue. Uh, and uh, so I ended up in, like, I think it was, like, ESPN have, like, a bar, don't they? Like, ESPN Sports. Yeah, they have an ESPN zone in Times yeah. Square. So I ended up going to that. Well, I, I shit you not, my friends, Syme and Joel, went to see Belinda Carlisle. I sat in a <laughs> I sat in a bar, and if you're wondering if Belinda Carlisle was a thing in 2003, she was not a thing in 2003. Yes, she was. And also, if you're wondering why they went, I can't help you with that. But so I just sat in a bar and just got in these conversations with uh, a, a random people about basketball, and it was one of the best nights of my life. Um, just to be you know in in this bar talking about basketball. But yeah, missed out on Yao Ming sadly. So that was the American side of the trip. We're gonna go to England and then you to South Africa. Uh, but first. The American side, yes, you caught up on a lot of sports, but America has this ability of throwing up weird shit, you know, <laughs> things that you never see. And sometimes when they say, like, oh, only in America, baby, it is sometimes very, very true. I mean, it's true for a lot of places, but some crazy shit that happens here, like uh, I think you mentioned to me about, in St. Louis, about <laughs> random, what was that? <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten that I told you that. Yeah, so... It had random shit and random cricket shit. I'm sure you'll ask me about the random cricket shit in a minute. But yeah, the random shit was, it was the biggest snowstorm in that part of America. So what's that northeast part of America, I suppose, in a very, very long time. And we must have been traveling up from, I think we were trying to get from Memphis to Chicago. And we were on a bus. And I remember like it was like 2 a.m. We had like a Greyhound pass. It's 2 a.m. And the bus kept breaking down, like just in the middle of the road. It was too cold for the bus. Somehow we finally got to St. Louis. And we went to the bus station. And you, you, you would have traveled by bus in America, I'm assuming. Yes, I have. I knew going in, I didn't tell my friends this, but I knew going in that Greyhound bus stations, I mean, they're in Tom Waits songs, aren't they, for a reason? <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not, it's not accidental that Tom Waits goes to those sorts of places. They are, and I've traveled around Europe and Africa. 
I still think American bus stations are the shittest places I've ever oh been. Oh my god, it gives you the creeps. Yes. So now we're in St. Louis, and every it's the, that was the last place before the snowstorm completely shut everything. So it meant that every bus stopped there. So we get off. It's like three or four in the morning. We get off the bus. We come in. There are people sleeping on every inch of this uh, floor. And we're just mm-hmm. like, and we so you know, you do that thing where you sort of ask people how long they've been waiting. This guy's like, I've been waiting for 36 hours. Someone else is like, I've been here for three days. And he's just like, oh shit, we're going to be here for fucking three days. Like, this is crazy. So after about an hour, I remember I, 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 I called home because I was trying to find out because my cousin had gone in like a different direction to us. He'd gone to Iowa and we were going to meet him in Chicago. It's before mobiles or anything. Yes. There was no internet cafe. We couldn't even, I couldn't even send him an email. So I had to from, fucking from the Greyhound station in fucking St. Louis. I had to call my my um, uncle back in in Victoria and say, can you get a message when he next calls you that if we're late, just tell him to stay at the hostel. We will be there, but don't worry. Don't panic if you don't hear from us. And then while I'm there making the call, I see like a phone book and I'm like, wait a minute, I'll just go through the hotels. There must be a hotel and we'll just work it out that way and we'll wait for the snow to melt. I had no idea if snow melted because I didn't have a... I didn't have a coat. I didn't own a coat at this stage in my life. Well, you're from Australia. Yeah, exactly. Well, Even but, but Melbourne. You are from Me- Melbourne, yeah. It's never that cold, though. I had like a, a warmish jumper. Anyway, so I'm like going through this, you know, yellow pages looking for hotels. And quite quickly, I realized that someone has pulled out all the H's and someone else has pulled out all the M's. So now I'm just sort of flicking through thinking, what can I find in here? So no hotels are motels for you. Okay. Yeah. So this American soldier comes up. And he says, can I please have the book? And I said, yeah, yeah uh, the, the phone book. And I said, you can have it in a minute when I finish looking at it. And then he says something along the lines of, no, I'm, I'm a soldier and I'm going to need the, you know, I, or maybe he said he's a, he serves or whatever they say. So you'll have to give me th- this phone book. And I, without thinking, because it's fucking four in the morning and I, yeah, that, my whole holiday is fucking in disarray. I just go, well, you're not my soldier. <laughs> <laughs> And at this stage, I hadn't really looked up. And he must have been about 18 and a half, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just legal, shaved head. He basically looked like a heroin addict, but in a soldier's uniform. Uniform, yeah. So I'm just like, all right, well, this is this is fine. So I flick through for a couple more minutes. There's nothing I can really find at this point. Give him the phone book, and he's pissed off at this point. Then a little while later, I go up, I, he puts it on the ground, and I go up and pick it up, and I'm just like, I wonder, like, if I can get this. So I call amtrak and just go the trains run when it snows and they're like yes they do and there's two tickets left to chicago for you and your friends so i booked the train but it was so frozen that no taxis were driving so we still had another two hours to kill so i head off to the toilet <laughs> in, in the ground stage i mean it's already there's no good story that goes i headed off to the toilet in the ground <laughs> station there's no way they can be good greyhound toilets are the original grinder oh it was just worse than that. It just, <laughs> you could smell the dead bodies that people had pissed on in there. So I go in and do my business in the cubicle. And as I come out, I open the cubicle. There's no one in the entire toilet except for our guy, the army guy, in his underwear, shaving himself with what, I, I could be wrong, but I remember it as a knife like Crocodile Dundee. Hopefully it was a <laughs> razor and I've just somehow changed my mind in that. And I'm like, so I've swung open the door of the cubicle. He's turned around. He's got a sharp implement in his hand in his underwear. Why he was in his underwear, I could, I still can't work out. 
And so I walk up and I think there's only one more thing you can do in this situation. You have to kind of like baller it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of walk up and he's staring at me the whole time, right? And I just walk up, you know, wash my hands. There's probably no soap because let's be honest, Greyhound toilet, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I put my hands under the water and just like this. And then I just sort of look at him in the mirror and he looks at me in the mirror and I just sort of went and just like blew him a kiss. And I had no idea what my game plan was, <laughs> other than I thought that if I confused him for a couple of seconds, that he wouldn't know what to do. And he literally just sort of stalled and sort of looked so confused. And then I just ca- sort of casually walked around him. And uh, then we waited outside in the snow for the taxi because <laughs> I was shitting myself. So, yeah. So, you're right. I mean, things like that happen all the time. We just went from Greyhound Station to Greyhound Station, and just weird things happened. There's quite a few Americans, and people have been to America listening to this podcast, but it is such a weird place to travel on a budget because poor people are just fucked in America. And when you're traveling like that, you just realize that, oh, my God, this is fucking horrible for everyone. Yeah, true, true, true. (laughs) So now, you know, obviously, as you are traveling through America, there is a cricket World Cup happening in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Kenya, right? Uh, Namibia. Everybody. And Namibia. <laughs> uh, Africa, the country. <laughs> Obviously, this is before uh, internet and everything. And I mean, really, cricket Info had taken over, really. So uh, how are you keeping track of uh, what's happening? So the first hostel we went to in, in Los Angeles had an internet cafe, like, kind of built in. And I remember we got off the plane, you know, a 16-hour direct flight from Melbourne to Los Angeles. You know, it was my first time on a long flight. I didn't sleep at all. I was out of my mind. But we were just like, let's just check, see if anyone's emailed from back home. And like, literally go on on, and straight away, it's Shane Warne is out of the entire series. So, <laughs> you know, by that stage, Crick Info was probably like the biggest website that, well, you or me used. I, I mean, IMDB was probably the only other sort of big website like that that you automatically went to so i was like telling my friends and they were on their computers and then there was like emails back to parents and like asking our dads what was going on and you know you've met my dad you know you can imagine what he, his email was it was like a line and a half i'm like this is all you can give me like literally the greatest player of a generation has just been done for a drug thing and all you can say is yeah he's gonna miss the world cup brad hogg's going over yeah great one dad so that was the first one. And then when you're in Lamar and Lubbock and those sorts of places, even finding internet cafes is quite tough. But the next one I remember was when we were in Chicago and we finally got to the hostel after, you know, I pulled an absolute blinder with the Amtrak. Also, Amtrak's so much better than Greyhound. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, that's why it's more expensive. I love American trains. I had no problems with. But yeah, so then we, we got to Chicago and, uh, you know, they had like ESPN showing and it was like, in the old days when there was probably only like one or two ESPN channels, it wasn't like ESPN, you know? Yeah, there was ESPN 1 and 2. That's yeah. about it. So like e- ESPN uh, PSL and ESPN Euroslam uh, that they had seem to have now. And on this, like, you know, the major sports center show, like at the end, they're like, and the South African cricket team is going to be knocked out of their own World Cup. And we were just like, why are they talking about this? And how the hell is this happening? And we had no idea. And it must have been about a week before the Sri Lanka game. So to be fair to ESPN, they were right on the ball. This is before they owned Crick Info or anything. They obviously had seen that South Africa was struggling. And then, you know, we traveled around. We ended up in New York. And my mate had lost his, uh, we were staying in Harlem, before mm-hmm. Harlem was gentrified, I should say. <laughs> that was, uh, you know, that, it was incredible, actually. It was a, a great experience. But we had to go into like a um, an electrical store because my mate had lost his um, shaver. And we're like in this electrical store in the in, in Harlem, 
and we're literally walking along and there must have been, it must have been BBC World Service was playing in one of the radios and literally they are talking about John Davison breaking mm. the world record for the fastest hundred in a World Cup. Now, we are all Victorian boys. We had all seen John Davison play for Victoria. Mm-hmm. I used to go to Shield games and John Davison would be 12th man for every second game. Right. And he would strut around in a singlet and his sunglasses on with his guns out. And like, we would always go, this guy's the most confident of any guy who <laughs> never plays. And when he played for Victoria, John Davison, he would bowl 40 overs, none for 60 every time. I'm not sure I ever saw him take a wicket. He's incredible. Just like, just, du- just, no one could hit him off the square and he'd never take a wicket. And we're like, how is this possible? And that was sort of the cricket thing. The only other cricket story that happened there is that we had a Sikh a taxi driver in New York who was like, you guys like cricket? And we're like, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, yeah, I like hockey more. And then he spent the next five minutes telling us about how his girlfriend tasted. And that's just not a lie. That just <laughs> happened. And then, yeah, from, uh, from America, then we flew to uh, London where, where my cousin was staying. We stayed in a hostel, so they, uh, Shepherd's Bush is like famous for mm-hmm. Aussie expats, although not anymore. Um, by the time I moved over, they'd all sort of either become hotel uh, or bar owners, or they'd gone back home. But back in those days, it was, and we stayed in a place called Belushi's, which is a famous gym. I, def- I mean, imagine naming something after Jim Belushi. Who would stay in that? <laughs> ABC here had a TV show named that for himself. I know, and it ran for like eight years. That was ridiculous. America, baby. Anything is possible in America. It was one of those sitcoms where the wife was just unreasonably attractive on like a bizarre level. But anyway. That's that's pretty much every sitcom in America. Yeah, that is, that is quite fair. But yeah, so we, we stayed in Belushi's, which was a backpacker place, but also had a Aussie pub. And so while we were there, England were playing Australia. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to watch it at my cousin's house, but she had a boyfriend who, instead of letting us p- watch cricket, even though we had spent a month absolutely starved of the game we were about to travel thousands of miles to get to, he decided that when we got to her place, we were going to watch videos of snowboarding that he had seen before instead of the cricket. So we ended up at Belushi's. And uh, it was incredible because it was an Australian pub. A lot of English fans turned up as well. So it was a really, mm-hmm. really good, like, 50-50 crowd. And it was a brilliant game, if you remember. England probably should have stolen that game. You know, Michael Bevan and uh, Andy Bickle sort of stole stole it with an incredible performance. Andy Bickle wasn't even supposed to be playing in that tournament. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd ever watched a cricket game outside of Australia. And I'm in England, in London watching it with a bunch of English fans. It could not have gone much better for me. <laughs> and then we, at my cousin's house, we finally convinced uh, her to to commandeer the TV and we watched in, you know, in a room full of Australians, maybe you know the greatest cricket game ever, the um, Duckworth and Lewis, Mark Boucher game, which was, uh, yeah. So all this happened before we even got to South Africa for the tournament. So at this stage, we, we are living it in, in a way that you just, I mean, no one would have to do anymore. I mean, you think about your world tour, and the access that you you had access to smartphones and laptops yep. and all this sort of stuff. We didn't have a laptop between us. So I was writing a book on our tour and I wrote it handwritten notes, page by page of a book because, I mean, I couldn't afford anything else. It's a laptop. I mean, who carried a laptop back then? You know? Oh, exactly. Uh, and it would have been so heavy. Can you imagine a laptop yeah. in 2003? <laughs> You could kill a soldier with it. I could have. Yes. And now I think about it, that would have been the best option. <laughs> So you get to um, South Africa and it's getting towards to be the um, pointy end of the tournament, right? Super six stages cut, r- rounding up. So uh, I guess you followed mostly Australia when you were in South Africa. 
Yeah, we planned it so badly. You had a homer back, you had a homer back then. Yeah, no, we only went to go to the Australian Games. If we okay. had been in cities with other games, we would have gone to them, but I don't think we overlapped with many. So we actually flew into Cape Town, got there, and then realized that Australia didn't have a single game in Cape Town from that point. And so literally, I forget what they call Kalula.com, I think, the really cheap South African airline, and we had to fly, get a $20 fare with them up to Joburg. Uh, mm. So most of Australia's games were Joburg, Durban, and Pretoria. And so we, we had two games, I think, in Pretoria. So we went up to Pretoria and we watched the first game of the Super Sixes. So we went out to, well, it's now called some Super Support Park, but what I suppose it was just known as Centurion. Centurion Park back then, yeah. Yeah, and so we got tickets pretty easy. It was Australia, Sri Lanka, so it wasn't a real problem. And we were staying in Pretoria, and so uh, it was easy, easy to get there. And what I remember is sitting down on the grass bank to watch a game, which you mm-hmm. got to remember if you're, a, if you're a kid from Melbourne, I'd never seen an international game on a grass bank. I'd sat on the MCG to watch Shield games before, but to be able to do it to watch an, uh, an Australian game was a very, very weird thing. Then they had, and I don't think they do this in South Africa anymore, but then they had people who had like backpacks of beer on, mm-hmm. and they would just come around and just like, you would hold a cup and they would just serve you. And they were serving like 13-year-old kids around us. <laughs> there was no responsible service of alcohol. They were like Australian fans unconscious for the second innings. And the only other thing I really remember of that game was that, you know, Ian Harvey was my boy. And mm-hmm. I, it, was either the, it was the second last ball of the innings. He left. I think he <laughs> ran down the wicket to go leg side of the ball. And yeah. I, it must have been Chimin Devas or whoever was bowling, bowled it wide. And he was so wide from him, he couldn't even reach it. And he left it and it wasn't called a wide. But yeah, uh, Australia won that one pretty easily from memory. Yeah. Um, so you can talk a bit more about uh, the cricket matches itself and all that. But now you're in South Africa. You're like way out of your comfort zone. Because I, I remember, right? So when I went to South Africa in 2014, December, the guy who we hitched a ride with, black African guy, but he kept telling me about how not to stop at the robots. <laughs> what, the hell is, what the hell is a robot? Like, Why is South African society so advanced that <laughs> not, the rest of the world does not know about robots? And then it's like, traffic robots. I'm like, what is it? And oh, traffic lights. Signals. I'm like, oh, okay. I love if, that if they call them that. Yeah, and if it's after, um, I don't know, sunset, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., whatever. They don't stop. He said, if light turns red, don't stop, keep going. Like, yeah. Huh, okay. Uh, but, I mean, that was in 2014, right? So I don't know what it was like in 2003. Uh, were you given uh, advice on how to uh, conduct yourself? Well, Lonely Planet Guide was from Melbourne. And so we had Lonely Planet Guide for South Africa, and it was pretty good. It was written by people traveling on a budget as well, which really helps compared to normal travel books. The other thing that was really random was when we were in the hostel in London, there was a guy who was a South African, I can't remember his job, but he worked in some in the finance industry, and he owned three flats in London, but couldn't afford to live in any of them. So he stayed in the hostel and paid like whatever it was, 20 bucks a night to stay in the hostel and then was paying off his mortgage. And he he took us through it. But until you're there, you don't, it, it's hard to put all those sorts of things into practice in it. But the one thing that, and we talked about this before, like I always say, if you go to, if you go to India, the best place to go first is probably either Colombo, which I know is not even in India, or Bangalore, right? <laughs> those are very good starter cities for the rest of India. You do not That's want to it. start your trip in Kolkata, um, you don't, you know, you don't want to start your trip outside the town in Mumbai, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, or Delhi, you know, those sorts of places. Just because if you're not used to a, a subcontinental or even Asian culture, I'm going to go to Delhi now. 
<laughs> but there you go. And so we were quite lucky in that, we, as I said, we flew into Cape Town. Then we flew up to Joburg. But because um, Australia were playing in Pretoria, we booked a place in Pretoria. Pretoria is a bit like that. Pretoria is really, it's like South African light, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I suppose is the best way to explain it. And so it gave us a good week of working things out. It was also, when I look back on my career as a writer, that week, in fact, it was a few weeks that we spent in, in, in Pretoria. But the first week and then the, the, the week of the finals, I actually learned more about the world of cricket in those weeks because there was Pakistani fans, Indian fans, English fans, uh, you know, everyone who traveled from around the world were all doing what we were doing on a budget, staying in this hostel, you know, had a bar and a table, tennis table and a swimming pool. So it was like, if you're not going to a pub, you would just stay there and hang out. And when the games were on, it was better to watch them there and drink there than it was to go to a pub and watch it. And then you were mm-hmm. watching it with all these different fans. So it was a great atmosphere. And then Pretoria, I never and have never felt anything but safe in Pretoria. Um, I, I don't, I mean, for all I know, it could be like the crying capital of the world and I've just been lucky. But I've always felt no, like... No, Pretoria is mostly white. Yeah, I've just always found like it's a pretty ch- chilled, uh, normal area. But the problems that we had was... So Australia were playing New Zealand, and I'm assuming that was the next game, uh, although you, you can tell me that I'm wrong. But only we couldn't get fares into PE for whatever reason. But there was a game in Port Elizabeth, and there was a game in Durban. So we flew to Durban, and we rented a car, and we went down to PE. That was when I learned about real South Africa mm-hmm. and how Absolutely. different it was. Like you, you don't get to uh, experience the real South Africa and uh, what its uh, history has wrought on its people. Till you get out of the suburbs. Yeah, well, certainly until you get out of Pretoria. You're definitely right there. <laughs> and so so we rented a car in Durban and then we drove down. Now, we did what any normal human being would do. We looked at a map and we went, there's a road that goes straight between these two places. Let's drive on it. Mm-hmm. We drove up and back that uh, between Durban and Port Elizabeth four times uh, when uh, during that tournament. And it was only on the fourth leg of that trip that a couple of locals said, you're driving on what road? No one drives on that road. It takes four hours longer than this other freeway, and it's not safe. You shouldn't. You guys shouldn't be on that road. By that stage, we didn't know. But I remember the first, mm. I reckon it must have been the first night, so uh, we were driving. We were planning on stopping in East London, and we drove through, and, you know, we're driving, driving. Most of the time, it's fine. Uh, you know, uh, we had absolutely no problems, other than the, the, the state, of, they were right, the state of the road wasn't great. But uh, we got to Umtata, which is, you know, one of the big townships um, uh, in that area. And I'd love to go back now and see what it was like. But back then, it was a really, really interesting place to hit at 8 p.m. at night. Mm -hmm. And there was just hundreds and hundreds of people out on the street. And it was hard to drive around people because of where they were. And that was when you just went, this is this is uh, nothing like we've, you know, that we were used to at all. And then I remember uh, that same night, we ended up, in this really cheap hotel in East London, on the outskirts of East London. And I remember the guy uh, who, who we, we, we booked the room off, he, he was this older black African guy, and his head was like had been caved in. Mm-hmm. And I, it was just that, yeah, it was when you realised that South Africa was, we, I think we think of it as a cricket place, and, you know, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't factored in just what it was really like. And that, that drive, that first night from Durban down to East London and then on to um, uh, eventually on to Pier, you really did learn that. And then on the way back, we didn't stay in East London again. We went to Grahamstown. That, I tell you what, that's a white place. <laughs> Lovely, though. <laughs> Lovely. Don't get me wrong. I'd go to Grahamstown anytime. But, yeah. 
So, all right. Didn't you get your stuff nicked at some place? Yeah, we're in this hostel, and they were just like, don't keep anything in your room. It's not safe here. It's not safe here. Uh, and so we left it in the in the rental car. And I now think that there was some sort of deal done between <laughs> the owners uh, and idiots uh, when idiots like us came through. Um, yeah, they sold my passport, which was the worst thing. Uh, but yeah, it must have been must have been the night after Asif Kareem. <laughs> mm. uh, in fact, it was probably that night of Asif Kareem um, uh, playing against the Sharia. And uh, yeah, so that was. Uh, I just remember Durban being really hot. I mean, I still, these days, it, it, I've been back to Durban two or three times since. It's still really hot. Let's talk uh, cricket. I think, you know, mm-hmm. obviously you went there to watch Australia and Australia go undefeated, even without Shane Warne. So what was it like? Uh, I mean, now you're more dispassionate follower of cricket, but back then, you know, you're, I'm guessing you're a through and through Aussie fan. Yeah. So what was it like? Well, you know me, Victoria's first and then Australia. Of course. And then Australia and Pakistan, depending on my mood, are probably second. Uh, <laughs> especially in those days. These days, I probably have Ireland, Af- Afghanistan, and some of the others up there. But Scotland, I should say Scotland, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so Australia had that, that chancy game against Pakistan, if you remember, uh, where mm-hmm. Andrew Simons had done well. So we knew about yep. that. Australia had prob- should have lost to England. Uh, and so we went down to New Zealand, and New Zealand in that era had a bit of a hold on Australia. They would beat Australia mm-hmm. quite regularly. Yes. And, and I was like the world's biggest fan of Shane Bond. I remember being in the car listening to Radio 2000 on one of our long trips. And I can't remember the game. Was it Was it maybe India where they had to bowl them out really yes. cheaply? And yeah. Shane Bond was – oh. And I remember, just remember being – captivated by Shane Bond on that tour and just thinking, this guy should be the best bowler in the world. And we know yeah. why he never went on to be that. But yeah, and then, uh, so being at that New Zealand game, and we were, they put up a temporary stand, obviously, for the home games in, in, in Port Elizabeth, in a great cricket stadium, as you know. It's one of my yeah. fa- favourite in the world. It's very underrated. I mean, yeah, I, I understand there's no Table Mountain behind it, but I just absolutely love it. <laughs> And we weren't that confident with Australia. We were very confident with the bowling with mm-hmm. Australia, but we were not confident with the batting at all that it was going to regularly score over 200, which is ridiculous looking back at that batting lineup. But yes. they didn't make big scores realistically for a lot of that tournament as well. So there was maybe a feeling behind it. And you didn't want to lose to New Zealand. And I remember mm-hmm. Brett Lee dropping short to Chris Cairns. He talked about this on on um, on the Foxtel comms uh, recently. They dropped short to Chris Cairns, and we were at the top of the the like the fake pavilion, and uh, what would you call them in America? Bleachers. And yes, as he, those he, bleats, yeah. Bleachers. Yeah, and as he, he pulled the ball, we could see over the uh, – it's not like a stand, is it? It's almost like corporate boxes, although they're not corporate boxes. <laughs> but he hit over that and down the road, and we could see the whole trajectory from where we were above <laughs> it and just thinking, oh, my God, we're going to lose to New Zealand. And then Shane Bond comes out and he's incredible and he takes all those wickets as well. And yeah, and then when Chris Cairns did that, we were just like, we're going to lose. But that was one of the other games that Australia completely pulled out of the fire. And I remember it was, this is the most home fan I ever was. And I think it's part of the emotion of traveling around the world. Like we traveled around the world to see Australia win a World Cup. Because mm-hmm. if you're an Indian fan, you, you always have the, in, you know, India hope of winning. If you're an England fan, you're just there to have a holiday. You know, <laughs> if you're a New Zealand fan, you're hoping to make the semi final. But we were legitimately, there thinking that Australia should not lose. Mm-hmm. And and then you're watching it and going, oh my God, we could lose to New Zealand in like the second game that we ever see. And then they pulled it out. And it was an incredible victory. Um, 
I think it was was it Brett Lee hit a bunch of sixes. I think at the end uh, to win that game. Australia, New Zealand. Yeah, uh, I think Australia played first. And oh, then, sorry, I, and, I, and then New Zealand got bowled out for like hundred or something. No, no, you're right. Sorry, Brett Lee uh, uh, made them have a good score. I think he yes. hit. Uh, he, uh, it was Bevan again, obviously, and Brettley hit, yep. and then, and then, um, and then you're right, and then Chris Cairns hit a couple of big ones, and we were like, "This is gonna, this, this is gonna go horribly." And then once the bowling got on top, and I was, I remember just like spit flying out of my mouth every time I, and I was screaming, and there was only about 25 people in the stand to begin with. They all left, and in the end, the only people around us were these young South African kids. And I remember two things. They could not believe that I was so passionate about this cricket game. And they mm-hmm. also wanted to know what Pepsi tasted like because they'd never mm. had a Pepsi before. Uh, and, yeah, and I was absolutely crazy. I can't think – the only other time I've probably been as loud and abusive were, uh, when it comes to Australian cricket was the 2009 Women's World T20 mm-hmm. when Claire – Taylor was hitting the ball and I think she might have been batting with Beth Morgan and they had Australia had all the boundary riders all the way out on the rope and Claire Taylor <laughs> hit a two every time she hit the ball and I was willing to go out on the field and attack someone <laughs> I was so angry I've talked to Claire Taylor about this I'm like I'm surprised you couldn't hear me and you you go you, you, you weren't laughing because not because it was it was one of those early games so there wasn't that big of a crowd there but as you're right, over the years, it just, especially during the game, I very rarely get involved in that. But back in those days, it was huge. And, you know, losing to New Zealand after traveling around the world would have been the biggest punch in the dick, let's be honest. Of course. <laughs> right. Uh, we're not going to talk about the final. Did you go to the final? Did you have tickets to that? Yeah. It's like, uh, in Wanderers. Are you saving Asif Karim for last? Is that, is that what's <laughs> happening here? Or, no, no, no. You've already done the whole thing with Asif. That is true. I mean, so what happened was we were in PE. And every time we were around a cricket ground, we would go up and say, tickets out for the finals, yeah. And they'd always say, no, 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 no. And then we went up and say, uh, we're in PE. So I'm trying to think, Australia must have played another game in PE. I, I, I remember being there, but I remember Brett Lee, if I remember correctly, getting in a fight with someone in the crowd. And uh, we must have been sitting near where the band was. It was great, uh, whatever, whatever that game was. But... So when we went to get those tickets, so this is just before the semi-final and the final. We went to get those tickets. We said again, are there any are there anything for the semi-final? And they went, Oh, I think that's the semi-final's coming out tomorrow. Come back tomorrow at 1 p.m. We come back at tomorrow at 1 p.m. expecting there nothing to be available. She's like, Yeah, we've got the semi-final tickets. Would you like to buy them? Yes, we buy them. We start to walk away and we can hear someone running behind us. And it's the woman from the ticket booth. And she came out. She goes, oh, sorry, sorry. J- just so that you guys know, did you want tickets for the final as well? <laughs> and we were just like, yes. And they'd literally gone on sale, you know, so we'd got the semifinal. And then three minutes later, we'd got the final. Hmm. And when we got to the final, there were guys I worked with at Qantas because a bunch of people from Qantas had flown out with no tickets. And we spent hours outside the ground trying to get them tickets from scalpers and, and, and mm-hmm. everything. And it was, you know, incredibly hard to get tickets to that game. But I think we got all of our friends in in the end. But, yeah, and so it was such a random thing that we ended up getting tickets. And we looked like – like I remember everyone in the hostel being like, how did you get these? And we're like, it took a lot of, you know, foresight. And <laughs> we hadn't even asked so much. We hadn't even asked about the tickets for the final and we got them. And had we been thinking really, we would have bought like 20, yeah? And then sold them and financed their whole fucking trip. Of course. Um, <laughs> but when you get to the final, you know, it's a pretty stress-free match if you're an Australian fan, right? And uh, I was watching the match uh, with like 20, 30 
friends and one Aussie friend. Uh, he was my cricket teammate here uh, in the US. So we watched it. It was not, you know, he was very polite. You know, he didn't want to rub it in. Um, but the, you know, the result was pretty much a foregone conclusion after Ponting and Martin. So uh, how was that for you, watching it uh, from the stand? And then we can talk about your uh, you know, stealing Simon's ball and, uh, <laughs> and uh, flying with the Aussie team back. And it was really interesting. The Asif Kareem spell, like, I, you're right, I've done about three hours of podcasts on it recently, but that actual spell as a fan, which, which mm. is weird, I should have talked about this more w- with Asif, but I, I remember just being like, there was a certain point where we went, we just looked at each other and went, we could fucking lose. We could lose this game. Like, if they, if one other bowler works out to, you know, this game. And I remember even the Sri Lanka semi final, I know this sounds weird, but Australia never quite got away enough in that game. And you have the Adam Gilchrist walking thing. And you're, you're imagining we're in the ground. We didn't even know 100%. We kept saying, it looked like he walked, but surely he wouldn't walk because why would you walk? Yes. In fact, he's the best story. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever written this. There was a radio ad that was being played while we were in South Africa, and it was about the only time Australians walk is when um, their cars run out of petrol. That was an (laughs) ad playing during that World Cup when Adam Gilchrist walked. So the Kenya game was a bit weird in that we should never have been in a position to lose it, and suddenly there was a chance we would lose it. The Sri Lankan game, I think even when Chaminda Bas was way behind the rate, there was almost a feeling that he had this freedom to hit. Mm. And we got a bit nervous, especially with Duckworth Lewis. If you remember, 2003, yes. no one really knew what Duckworth Lewis was. And I'm not Could just making, anything. Yeah, I'm not making a joke about South Africa here. But for all we knew, <laughs> it's like they needed 80 off 10 balls and then Duckworth Lewis happened and they came out and they need a single with an over to spare. We didn't know. We didn't know, man. <laughs> and so, so we'd been a bit nervous there. And so th- that kind of nervousness was still there, and especially because we didn't trust the batsmen. Mm. As I said, we trusted the bowlers. I mean, Gillespie and Warren weren't there. We, we don't talk about the fact that Gillespie, I mean, Gillespie was still a gun at that point, mm-hmm. and, he wasn't, and he wasn't there. And so, so we were a little bit nervous. But the thing I remember is just walking up to the ground and just there was tens of thousands of Indian fans just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. They showed up from nowhere. Yeah, and I remember every single one of them just saying, we're going to win. And, uh, you know, I knew Indian guys. I grew up in Melbourne, so I grew up with a lot of Sri Lankan guys, uh, a few Bangladeshis, then Pakistanis moved in, and then eventually Indians moved in. So I was used to hanging out with subcontinental people, as you, as you know. Uh, you know, it's, uh, my mum's best friend is, uh, is a Sri Lankan who lives two houses down. My babysitter was a Sri Lankan, and I'm used to, I play cricket with, uh, as I said, all those sorts of um, different guys as well. What I wasn't used to was an Indian crowd. Mm-hmm. And what I wasn't used to was the confidence. I did not mm-hmm. get that at all because every time someone would say it, I'd look at my mate and go, if this was us, we'd be like, we're coming just to watch our team lose. Because how would you th- look at that Indian team and look at that Australian team and be like, we're going to beat them? It was such a foreign concept to us. I mean, literally in this case. <laughs> and, and from a cricket point of view, you, I mean, I think you will understand here that until Sewag was out, I was mm-hmm. like, I was literally saying they could still win. And now looking back, if I, was an, you know, if I was an analyst or a journalist now, I'd be going, shut up, you idiot. Of course they can't win. But I just remember thinking they had to get through part-time overs of Simons. They had Brad Hogg, who Saywag almost killed me with one of his sixes that went over <laughs> us in the crowd. And I, you know, we're just thinking there is an absolute chance here. But looking yeah. back on it from your point of view or from any, well, no, you were a fan as well, but from an, a journalist or a, a, from the emperor of podcasting, yeah, it's a ridiculous thing to think we were ever going to lose that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolute nonsense uh, that it was. 
Do you want to share your story of waking Adam Gilchrist up in the flight back? Well, before we get that, so when Australia were warming up for the finals, we went to the training sessions. So I, th- I think they spent most of their time training in what's the high altitude place in South Africa? I felt not Potchefstroom. Potchefstroom. So they spent most of their time. So we didn't see them training much. So they weren't mm. in the cities that much. So we actually saw quite a few of the other teams. You'd be shocked to know that I, you know, such a cricket nerd that I was as an uh, I was watching other teams train <laughs> in a World Cup. <laughs> But one day, one day we were there, and it was before the semi-final or the final. And we were watching them train. Oh my god, I can't believe I said that out loud. But anyway, I was watching them train, and um, I was behind the nets. And Andrew Simons, I, I think it was just throwdowns, and he was smashing the ball. And there were all these young South African kids fielding. But you can imagine Andrew Simons hitting the ball. Mm-hmm. Occasionally they would get through, and I, I would field it and throw it back. And I did that about three times. And then the fourth time I fielded one, and looked down. And here's the ball, which you can see it in front of me now. And I just oh, went, right. this. And I took it and I stole it. <laughs> so I kept the ball with me for the, you know, for the next week or so. And we weren't sure what to do with it. And then because I worked for Qantas, when the World Cup happened, we had about three or four more days left, but we got robbed, as, as you talked about before. So we, had, mm-hmm. we were broke. We had to buy extra clothes when we were out there. And once the World Cup happened, we were just like, we've now been in South Africa for a month. We really enjoyed it, but we just want to go back home. And so we changed our flight and we managed to change our flight to the same flight as the Australian cricketers. And it was completely by random. I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't even realize. Um, I think my friends from Qantas had done it on purpose as a, like a little treat. I also met Crash Craddock. Outside of me and Dan Breddick, I can't imagine another person in 2003 running up and going, hi, Mr. Craddock, um, I, it's an honor to meet you. And I've brought this up with Crash now and he, he pretends to remember it. He didn't remember it. He's just <laughs> like, why is this kid saying things to me? Anyway. And this is before Crash was famous. This is like from his little tiny newspaper photo, of which he did look like, uh, to be fair. So as we go into the lounge, and I mean the departure lounge, like not a special lounge, we walk Mm -hmm. in and the entire Australian team is there and the World Cup is there. And we line up with a bunch of other Australian fans to take a photo with the trophy, which I will try and find for this episode. Mm -hmm. And I remember my, my, my cousin Joel, so he's there. And he grabs the trophy for the photo and just so like like a millimeter pulls it towards him. And then Andrew Simons just comes in and yanks the trophy back away <laughs> um, as if to go, mate, you're close enough to it already. And so Joel goes out and he gets autographs with all the players except for one. Damien Martin had a broken finger and also said, mm. this is the best thing about having a broken finger. I don't have to do autographs. <laughs> Dick. Yeah. And so we chatted to, in fact, uh, you know, it, it, one of those situations where you're in the lounge and like Brett Lee was like next to us. And I haven't actually ever really spent that much time with Brett professionally, but that day we spent probably about 20 minutes talking to him just because we're all waiting for our flight, which was delayed. So we get on the plane and they obviously all go to the nose end, mm-hmm. except for Nathan Bracken, who was a late replacement, I think, or didn't play Nathan Horitz who was uh, clearly no one was buying him a business class fare and the way he was treated in Australian cricket. John Buchanan, who I think, what's he, about six foot six. So, yeah, put him in the back of the plane. Uh, but obviously they'd run out of business class tickets, so, so a few of them went down to the back. And then next to us in our row, just randomly, was the family of the Gilchrists and Darren mm-hmm. Lehman's wife. So Lehman and Gilchrist came down to chat to them, and so we instantly knew who that was. And then as the flight was about to take off, Gilchrist came back and remember, he's just one, it's literally the World Cup happened. We all got really drunk and this is the following night. They -hmm. couldn't have been in any better state than we were. And we were in a horrendous state of just 
I don't know if we'd been to bed before that flight. And I'm sure Gilchrist was in exactly a similar situation. And so he comes down from business class and sort of taps Darren Lehman's wife on the shoulder and says, do you want to go up and take my seat? I'll sit down here and help my wife with the child in economy. And at that moment, we were just like, this is the greatest scene we have ever seen, right? (laughs) What an absolute legend. What a person (laughs) who would do that. And I will just go forward because, as I said, I worked for Qantas. Years later, I actually dealt with Gilly a bit because his, his family's from regional New South Wales, mm-hmm. and sometimes he would need help to, to get his family on flights and stuff. And I dealt with him as a professional, and he was an absolute gentleman as a professional, as he was um, in this situation. I also dealt with Damien Martin as a professional, and he was as much a dick as he was that day about the finger thing. So, yeah, so we're on the flight, and it, I can't, can't remember how old the baby was, but we're in, you know we were flying to Perth. And the baby did not stop crying. Just one of those flights. And he was up and, and he let his wife sleep and he stayed with the baby. And I reckon it took him about three hours to finally get the baby to fall asleep. And then I had to get up and go take a piss. And I was on the window seat and my mate was asleep on the aisle. And I, I was like, I don't want to wake him. So I jump over my mate. Have you ever met my, um, Joel, my, my cousin? Yeah, of course. He's a solid <laughs> human being. <laughs> He's a big unit. Yes. Big unit. He's a big unit. He's going to be listening to this and so pissed <laughs> off. But he's a big unit. And I was like, I don't want to wake him up. So I try and jump him. <laughs> Obviously, you are athletically gifted. And I was quite a big unit myself in those days as well. To be fair. <laughs> I actually managed to jump him. And just as I get over, I trip on his thigh. And I go <laughs> elbow first into Adam Gilchrist's neck thrusting gilly around the baby wakes up oh fuck and i'm just like oh my god this guy has just won a world cup for australia and i have (laughs) fucking smacked him in the neck and woken up his baby when he's given up business class to look after his family but Mm -hmm. to be fair to him he was just oh it's all right and i was just like it's not all right this is the shittest thing i've ever done and if i believed in any honor system at all i would find an exit door and throw myself out of this plane but yeah, so that was that World Cup. It, it was an incredible journey. I was 23, but mm. a, as you know, I, I mean, until I worked for Qantas, I'd never been on a plane. And I, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but that was the first time I'd left Australia. I'd never left Australia before. I'd never seen sporting events out of, outside of Australia. Uh, I'd never seen a cricket game, out, uh, you know, an international game outside of Melbourne, realistically. And it was, yeah, a, a big, big le- learning curve as a cricket fan, as a human being, Um and it was, yeah, just a remarkable thing, which is just a bit of a shame that had to end with me fucking smacking Gilly in the neck. We started this podcast with how this is the piece that uh, you would have wanted to write, or you wanted to write, but you haven't written, right? So from the writing perspective, how do you connect all these experiences? What is the hook? How would you write this story? Yeah, I, I think I suppose now looking back on it, it took me from being a suburban Australian male you know white straight guy i don't come from wealth or anything but if you come from australia and you're not destitute poor you're from a wealthy situation even if you don't know it Mm -hmm. and i think it put me in a lot of different situations you know i remember walking through the homeless sections of memphis um staying in harlem going through parts of london and and, you know uh, which was really struggling at the time going through umtata and east london and uh, Joe, Joe Berg, um, and all those sorts of things. Meeting, I grew up in, you know, Melbourne's quite a multicultural place, even if it's very ethnically white. 
Mm-hmm. It's still that, you know, I grew up with Italians and Greeks and Albanians and, and, and Sri Lankans and as we talked about before, and all sorts of, uh, you know, sort of different background people. And then you get to South Africa and America and you realize there's a white group here and there's a black group here and there's an Asian group here and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And I think it really did open up my eyes to all that sort of thing. I mean, one thing that had nothing to do with cricket but really changed the way I looked at the world was when we were catching a bus just after the Wizards game and we were going mm-hmm. from Washington to New York. And we were on an absolute high. You know, Michael Jordan's just got yeah. 40 points, won the game, absolute high. And we're on this overnight bus um, up to New York. And I tried to get the back row, and this homeless woman got the back row. And she hadn't washed in days, and her clothes were rags. And I don't know what it was, but she had a problem where she had to keep spitting. And we are mm. on a bus. And so she decided to spit into a plastic bag. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a human being spit into a plastic bag. Yes, I have. The combination <laughs> noise thereof. <laughs> First you have, and then you have the spit, and then you have the plastic. Oh my god! Anyway, I have I have taken an overnight bus in Bangladesh, going from Dhaka to Chittagong. Right? You've heard spitting in the plastic bags. And when the bus stopped, it's worse than the plastic bag. Was there was one person? The bus stopped. The people got out, cleared their lungs. Like I mean, 30, 40 men just standing around cleaning their lungs. <laughs> oh my god! So we, uh, you know, we arrived in LA. We went to Vegas, uh, then mm-hmm. we went to Colorado and Texas and Memphis and St. Louis and, and then um, Chicago and, um, and uh, onto the East Coast. By about Las Vegas, actually, I think by Memphis, I was so sick and tired of saying I was Australian because Steve Irwin was the biggest thing in America <laughs> at the time. But I don't know if you know this, no one in Australia knew who he was. Right now, I only knew who he was because I'd seen like one episode of his show. It used to be shown at like 5 p.m. on a Sunday on Channel 7. He wasn't a celebrity in Australia. We didn't know anything about him at all. He only became famous in Australia because he got famous in America. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was famous in Brisbane. I don't want to, you know, maybe up north, but certainly in Melbourne. We had no idea. I'm pretty sure the other guys that I was traveling with didn't even know. Right. So this is not going to make me sound good, but... <laughs> From about Memphis onwards, I would say I was from New Zealand, mm. right? Just because it was before Lord of the Rings, and mm-hmm. so no one knew about New Zealand. There was no follow-up questions. And also, I kind of thought, oh, I could be a prick now, and they're just going to think New Zealanders are pricks. <laughs> right? It was a bit of a joke. It was like a, it was almost like I was playing a role-player thing for my the book I was writing, which we will get to in a minute, actually. Mm-hmm. Finish with the book. But occasionally would, 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 would change it up and would say I was from the Netherlands. I just figured that no Americans would know anything about the Netherlands. And I was right. I was right. Back was then, right. and you would be right even in 2021. Yeah. And so mostly New Zealand, occasionally in the Netherlands. This homeless woman says, where are you guys from? And before my friend could answer Australia, I said the Netherlands. And she says, ah, I've studied them. Now, I was not expecting that answer from a homeless person, right? <laughs> And she was, she must have been mid-50s. And she then started drilling me on facts about the Netherlands. She hadn't really studied the Netherlands. What she had studied was apartheid, which obviously went into that. Mm -hmm. And she knew a lot about the Boer War as well. Now, I knew nothing about the Netherlands other than total football, right? And maybe that they had a cricket team. I can't, can't tell you anything else that I knew about the Netherlands at that stage. And she knew everything. And, like, she's asking about, like, what kind of form of governance they had and all this sort of stuff. And it was a real eye-opener for me. And and really thinking back to it, I should have noticed it in Melbourne because there were so many 
Melbourne heroin addicts that were very similar that were educated and were smart and were interesting people who just got hooked on drugs. And she was probably the same, but probably a different drug than heroin. And it was a real eye-opener for me of just, you can't just say that person is homeless and that person is is poor mm-hmm. and that person, people aren't like that. And she was an absolutely brilliant woman and I think really changed who I was. So I think that whole trip was just, it was just a succession mm-hmm. of, of that sort of stuff. There's even a guy in Memphis who tried to um, rob us. Um, and I know that sounds horrible, but I remember thinking, this guy's really smart. I'd really like that. He had like a game plan, just sit there going, you know, you, you, you have to reevaluate a little bit. And all these things were in my book. So my book was called Search for a Perfect Cheeseburger. And I went through two notebooks. I wrote about 500, what, what would it have been, A5 pages mm-hmm. of books. But when we got robbed in Durban, my books were there and they, they didn't care, obviously, but they, when they took my stuff, they took my notebooks. And so I never, that's part of the reason I've never written about it because I knew I wrote so much great stuff when I was traveling. It was probably the first time I ever really wrote great stuff. And then I was writing really interesting stuff about the cricket as well, which would have been really handy mm-hmm. years later. And it all sort of went, and so it's almost scarred me a little bit. And I've written the Gilchrist story occasionally and the Andrew Simons. Oh, I should say Andrew Simons, after stealing the World Cup back for himself, also signed the ball. So they mm, yeah, signed. Nice. Uh, yeah, I think um, – <laughs> I think uh, it, it did. I think it changed the way I looked at the world, that tour, because we were so poor ourselves, like, you know, as tourists, we had so little money that we had to stay with other people who were like us. And you really did get a sense of that the world wasn't like it, we thought it was at all. And it was a real, it was a real eye opener. And I think it changed the way I thought about cricket and probably changed the way I thought about the world. On that note, Jared, thanks once again for having me. And also to, uh, if the robber from Durban is listening, Complete the story on uh, the search for the perfect cheeseburger. All right, just a very quick question: How much do you think if that that manuscript is found now, and you've got to understand that no one will be able to understand my handwriting? Mm-hmm. What do you think I would get for it on eBay? Not much. I reckon. I reckon I could get one hundred and thirty bucks. I was going to say like somewhere like forty bucks. Okay, forty bucks. Forty bucks is it's, it's like you know decent night out. Somewhere between 40 and 130, I think, is very fair. Subhash, thank you very much for having me on my podcast. Always my pleasure, Jared. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. <laughs>